Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source of all mental health-related news, including anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, along the way trying to better inform the general public about mental illness and the treatments for it, and trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment, all of that without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back to the show. And this is the Wednesday, October 29th edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope you've been feeling well. And uh, another reminder for those of you who suffer from seasonal affective disorder, or otherwise known as winter depression, uh, we're going to be turning the clocks back uh, to leave daylight savings time this coming Sunday Uh, And so you want to be prepared for that. Uh, If you own a light box, time to start sitting under it now, uh, every morning for, say, half an hour or so, whatever you're used to doing this time of year. Uh, Get a jump on it before we turn the clocks back. It'll work better that way. And as a general reminder, for those of you who may not suffer full-blown seasonal affective disorder, but still tend to be a little bit down, when we get up and go to work before the sunrise and uh, come home from work uh, after sunset, that the best way to combat that is take a break when it's a sunny morning and get outside, even if it's just for a few minutes. Well, that will certainly help. If you're stuck inside and it happens to be a sunny day, open the blinds and curtains wide, and uh, that will certainly help. Um, That will certainly help stave off those uh, doldrums from the uh, longer uh, dark periods uh, in the shorter days when we have less sunlight. Now, as far as this week's top mental health story, this has to be uh, the article that says there is no proof that these brain training games work. That, according to some experts, and to me, and I saw this, I said, well, this is huge because so many people are understandably very concerned about the state of their mind and how it's functioning and concerned about the development of dementia someday, especially Alzheimer's disease. And so it's a very popular idea to say, well, what kind of exercises can I do for my mind? And will this help me stave off the possibility of coming down with Alzheimer's disease someday? And a lot of these methods have been discussed and debated and recommended and endorsed. And we're going to go through what these experts have come up with to say, hey, you know what? Uh, There's really no proof that they help. And this is not the first time that anyone has claimed that these brain exercise uh, websites or or games or other things don't help. But I think 
uh, as you'll see, this is a more comprehensive look at the issue. And, um, well, we'll let you decide for yourself whether you feel like they make a compelling case or not. Uh, so let's see what they have to say. But many so-called brain training games may be marketed as a way to boost people's alertness and intelligence. But scientists are now warning that such claims are not based on actual science. 69 scientists, it's a pretty large group, a pretty major consensus, I would say, and they're from around the world, not just from one university, issued a statement uh, this past week saying there is no compelling scientific evidence supporting the claims that playing brain games may actually help people enhance their mental powers or to overcome the effects of aging on the brain. The scientists didn't indicate which brain training products are making misleading claims and which aren't. And I think that the fact that they didn't gives them some greater credibility. Uh, think of it this way, certainly uh, if they picked on luminosity and specifically and yet they were promoting some other product or something, they certainly would have no credibility at all. But they're just talking about all of them in general. Now, the brain fitness business has been booming in recent years. It's forecasted to reach $6 billion in 2020. Can you believe that? $6 billion from this brain fitness business. Well, uh, I know that sounds like a staggering amount of money. That's a shocking figure. But when you consider the vast number of baby boomers who you know, only fairly recently, the first wave of whom have hit retirement age and uh, the age, uh, adva they're advancing on the ages when dementia becomes more prevalent. And this generation has always been one to uh, latch onto trends that help improve their health. When you think of it that way, it's not quite so shocking. Now, the most well-known website for these brain training games is Lumosity. It has more than 60 million subscribers in 180 companies. Uh, I'm sorry, countries rather, 180 countries, according to the company, California-based Happy Neuron, a neuron is a brain cell, has nearly 11 million users and offers brain training programs to stimulate the main five cognitive functions, including memory, attention, language, and logical thinking. There's also Rosetta Stone's Fit Brains, which offers games designed by neuroscientists to help train crucial brain skills. Some companies take their focus a step further from working on basic mental functions. The British CogMed says that it develops brain training programs to help children with attention and learning problems. And the Israeli Neuronics says it, it aims to improve mental function in people with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. 
Now, you should know the British are not very big on treating kids for attention problems with medications. And uh, Israel are trying real hard to be on the cutting edge of uh, treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Now, the scientists involved in issuing this new statement, again, the 69 scientists from around the world, they said they take issue with companies that, quote, assure consumers that claims and promises are based on solid scientific evidence, unquote, because they say the scientific literature does not support these claims. It is customary for advertising to highlight the benefits and overstate potential advantages of their products. But in the case of the brain games, companies also assert that the products are based on solid scientific evidence developed by cognitive scientists and neuroscientists. So this group felt compelled to issue a statement directly to the public. Some brain training products with misleading claims may especially exploit the anxieties some older people have regarding age-related cognitive decline. Some of the brain games even claim to help prevent Alzheimer's disease. However, no studies have demonstrated that playing brain games cures or prevents Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia. Although some studies have found that playing brainy games seems to improve people's thinking skills, the studies have generally looked at people's scores on tests given in a lab setting. The problem with that is that findings in the lab do not necessarily translate to complex real-life mental skills. Moreover, it is unclear how long such improvements may last. <clears throat> do not expect that cognitively challenging activities will work like one-shot treatments or vaccines. There is little evidence that you can do something once or even for a concentrated period and be inoculated against the effects of aging in an enduring way. In all likelihood, gains won't last long after you stop the challenge. Uh, that caveat from this group of researchers. Still, it is true that the human brain can change and improve, even in old age. Any new experience that requires mental effort can produce changes in the brain. However, not every change is significant enough to help with the brain's general health. The jury is definitely still out on the best way to sharpen mental abilities. But playing brain games is likely not as effective as learning a new language or a new musical instrument or exercising, according to the researchers. Now, I have talked before on the show about how other scientists have concluded that the only means of uh, improving brain function that have solid scientific evidence based on clinical studies are physical exercise, uh, especially 
uh, aerobic or cardiovascular exercise, something that gets your heart rate going. Uh, again, reinforcing the point that whatever is heart healthy is also brain healthy. And remaining socially active. Uh, remaining socially active has been shown to be correlated with staving off the incidence of dementia. Uh, so being um, socially interactive with other people is stimulating to the brain and uh, interacting with others and thinking about what they're saying and formulating a response and things like that. All of that stimulates the brain. So I would say save your money. Don't buy these brain training games. Instead, engage in physical exercise. Engage in social activity. All right, we're going to take our first commercial break. When we come back, we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that's individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you'll not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with all the latest mental health related news. Now, in the first segment of the show, we're talking about some scientists who find that brain training games don't work in terms of improving memory and thinking and cognitive function and certainly couldn't be considered viable means of preventing Alzheimer's disease. <clears throat> now we're going to go over a couple of other articles having to do with ways people can preserve memory. This next uh, article that I want to talk to you about, there's some research that was done, University of Texas, Galveston, and also University of Kentucky and University of Maryland. They are saying that if you're over 60 years old, drink up. Alcohol is associated with better memory. Now, 
That's the headline. That's the soundbite. We're going to take a closer look at this research and what it's really saying. But right off the bat, this is a perfect example of how the media will distort the message of medical research study and create a soundbite with misinformation and something that you could easily see would give some excuse to drink too much and, to, and make a false claim. Well, hey, doctors say it'll improve my memory. Well, not so fast if you're going to overdo it, and really not so fast at all, as we'll see. So anyway, these researchers found that for people 60 and older who do not have dementia in the first place, okay, light alcohol consumption during late life is associated with higher episodic memory, that is, the ability to recall memories of events. Well, let's break that down a little bit. First of all, light alcohol consumption. Uh, it's not defined in the article, but this is not talking about drinking a lot. Moderate alcohol consumption is considered up to two drinks a day for a man, up to one drink a day for a woman. That's moderate alcohol. So light alcohol would be even less than that. So that would be, say, maybe up to one drink a day for a man and up to a half a drink a day for a woman. Not sure. Again, that there is no definition in the article about what they mean by light alcohol consumption. I can only extrapolate from what we know the definition of moderate alcohol consumption is and assume light is less. Now, they do mention something about moderate alcohol consumption. They say that was linked with a larger volume in a particular brain region critical for episodic memory. It's called the hippocampus. It's in the temporal lobe of the brain. Now, the relationship between light alcohol consumption and episodic memory goes away if hippocampal volume is factored in providing new evidence that the function of this region of the brain is a critical factor in these improvements. Now, this research was published in a journal known as the American Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias. They looked at more than 660 patients in the well-known Framingham Heart Study offspring cohort. These patients completed surveys on their alcohol consumption and demographics. They completed a battery of neuropsychological assessments, and they also were assessed for the presence or absence of one genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, the ApoE4 gene, and they had MRIs of their brains. And the researchers found that both light and moderate alcohol consumption in older people is associated with higher episodic memory and larger volume of the hippocampus. Now, as far as executive function in terms of thinking or overall mental ability had no effect. So it was very narrow only on episodic memory, which is, again, the ability to recall memories of events. Now, findings from animal studies suggest 
that moderate alcohol consumption may contribute to preserved hippocampal volume by promoting generation of new nerve cells in this structure in the brain, in addition, exposing the brain to moderate amounts of alcohol may increase the release of brain chemicals involved with cognitive or information processing functions. They found no significant differences in cognitive functioning and regional brain volumes during late life according to midlife alcohol consumption. Again, they only looked at late-life alcohol consumption. And that they didn't see it based on midlife alcohol consumption may be due to the fact that adults who are able to continue consuming alcohol into old age are healthier and therefore have higher cognition and larger regional brain volumes than people who had to decrease their alcohol consumption due to unfavorable health outcomes. Now, they're careful to state that although the potential benefits of light to moderate alcohol consumption to cognitive learning and memory later in life have been consistently reported, extended periods of abusing alcohol often defined as having five or more alcoholic beverages during a single drinking occasion, is known to be harmful to the brain. And this is why, in my opinion, the media's reporting of a research paper like this is irresponsible. Uh, the, the sound bite, the headline is, well, if you're over 60, drink up, it'll improve your memory. There is a lot more to it than that. Scientists know it's in a subset of older people who do not have any sign of dementia to begin with, and this was not the population of 60-year-olds at large. This was a highly screened-out and distilled population taken from a subset of a major research study, and they were screened for many, many different things. Uh, so, to say that this recommendation is very far removed from the population of 60 years and older uh, at large doesn't begin to describe the situation. Um, they found this to be the case in a very narrow, specific subset of that population, and a lot more work needs to be done to study these folks to see what are the unique physiological and genetic factors that may be responsible for why their light to moderate alcohol consumption resulted in better episodic memory. So my advice would not be to start drinking or to drink more and delude yourself into thinking that it will improve your memory in, a, in any way, shape, or form, but instead wait for more research uh, with a larger group of subjects, with a more general population, and without so much pre-screening to really see what the effects of light to moderate alcohol consumption are on memory. And above all else, keep in mind the appropriate limits. Again, uh, moderate being up to two servings a day 
for a man, up to one for a woman. When what's a serving? Serving is either one 12 ounce beer or one five ounce glass of wine or one ounce and a half shot of liquor, either straight up or in a mixed drink. And this is another myth and misconception. A lot of people uh, who come to see me seem to still harbor, well, I don't drink liquor, only uh, beer and sometimes wine. Doesn't matter, folks. The alcohol in beer is the exactly the same as the alcohol in wine or liquor. The only difference is the volume of liquid it's contained in. All those are equivalent amounts. <clears throat> All right. Now, certainly don't want to... Uh, have this to generate into a temperance speech, not about that at all. Um, really just the overall message, uh, be careful about media reporting medical research. The message can get distorted. Now here's something more positive and easier to swallow quite, quite literally. And uh, also uh, based on uh, more broadly applicable science. And that is, as far as the ongoing fight against Alzheimer's disease, there's new research on walnuts. Now, a new animal study published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease indicates that a diet including walnuts may have a beneficial effect in reducing the risk, delaying the onset, and slowing the progression of or preventing Alzheimer's disease. Research uh, found significant improvement in learning skills, memory, even reducing anxiety, and also motor development in mice fed a walnut-enriched diet. The researchers suggest that the high antioxidant content of walnuts may have been a contributing factor in protecting the mouse brain from the degeneration typically seen in Alzheimer's disease. Oxidative stress and inflammation are prominent features in this disease, which affects more than 5 million Americans. Now, according to the lead researcher, the findings are very promising and help lay the groundwork for future human studies on walnuts and Alzheimer's disease, for which, of course, there is no cure. And while, of course, a lot of people are skeptical of rodent studies, at least it is a mammalian brain. And there are some uh, analogies and, and similarities that would point the way toward uh, the probable similar findings in human research. This study adds to the growing body of research that demonstrates the protective effects of walnuts on cognitive functioning. Uh, they examined the effects of dietary supplementation on mice with 6% or 9% walnuts, which would be the equivalent to one ounce or one and a half ounces per day, respectively, of walnuts in humans. And this uh, followed up on a previous study of the protective effects of walnut extract against the oxidative damage caused by amyloid beta protein which is a major component of the plaques that form in the brains of those with Alzheimer's disease. We'll continue discussing the Walnut Study and have more mental health-related news after our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? 
All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We're talking about the latest research on how eating walnuts may someday be shown in humans, based on this uh, initial mouse study, to help prevent Alzheimer's disease. Now, someone in the United States develops Alzheimer's disease every 67 seconds, and the number of Americans with Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia are expected to rapidly escalate in coming years as the baby boom generation ages. By the year 2050, the number of people aged 65 and older with Alzheimer's disease may nearly triple from 5 million to as many as 16 million, emphasizing the importance of determining ways to prevent, slow, or stop the disease. Estimated total payments in 2014 for all individuals with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias are $214 billion. And that uh, the article doesn't detail where that number comes from, but it's easy to speculate that comes not just from medical costs, but uh, specialty care, whether that's in the home or in a more structured facility, such as assisted living or memory care units or nursing home. And things like their caregivers, their medications, etc. Now, walnuts have other nutritional benefits as they contain numerous vitamins and minerals and are the only nut that contains a significant source of alpha-linolenic acid, uh, 2.5 grams per ounce, that is an omega-3 fatty acid with heart and brain health benefits. Researchers also suggest that alpha-linolenic acid may have played a role in improving 
the behavioral symptoms seen in the study. Now, omega-3s, uh, as you've just heard, are not only derived from fish, uh, especially things like salmon and other uh, seafood that you've heard a lot more about in terms of heart health as well as brain health, although not all studies have found it to be effective. Um, so the plant source from walnuts definitely seems to be helpful, at least again, again in this preliminary mouse study. Hopefully researchers will follow this up with human studies. Now we're going to get back to omega-3s later in the show. Uh, there's an, a research article that found uh, fish has a positive effect on the use of antidepressants. But before we get to that, I have one last article about a uh, food or beverage, as it were. We've talked about wine, and we talked about walnuts. Now we're going to talk about a compound found in cocoa. That's right. This compound in cocoa staves off memory loss. Compounds found in cocoa beans, which are used to make chocolate, may reverse the normal age-related memory decline seen in healthy older adults, according to researchers. Now, before you go reach for that chocolate candy, which I'm sure is around the house in abundance, seeing as how Halloween is this coming Friday night, wait to hear the rest of the story. Now, in this new study, people who were randomly assigned to eat a diet high in these compounds, which are called flavanols, for three months performed significantly better on a memory test than people assigned to, to uh, eat a diet low in flavanols. And again, hold off, folks. Trust me, these people were not eating candy for three months, okay? Additionally, brain imaging of the participants who consumed the high amounts of flavanols revealed noticeable improvements in the function of a region of the brain called the dentate gyrus, which is thought to be involved in memory. If further studies, which do need to be done, support these new findings, researchers could one day produce an off-the-shelf dietary supplement of cocoa flavanols aimed at improving people's mental function. Flavanols are naturally found not just in cocoa beans, but in tea leaves and in certain fruits and vegetables as well. However, the overall amounts of flavanols they possess, as well as their specific forms and mixtures, vary widely. A recent study in mice found that flavanols increased the number of connections among brain cells in that area, the dentate gyrus. And other research found that changes in this region might be linked with age-related memory decline, such as forgetting where you parked the car or placed your keys. Normal age-related memory decline starts in early adulthood, but usually does not have any noticeable impact on people's quality of life until they reach their 50s or 60s. Uh, you can start to see short-term memory decline as early as age 40, 
and names are the first thing to go. So don't worry too much about that if that's happened to you. Age-related memory decline is different from the devastating memory impairment that occurs with Alzheimer's disease, which happens when that disease impairs and destroys brain cells in various parts of the brain, including the memory circuits. In this new study, researchers wanted to see if cocoflavanols might improve dentate gyrus function and therefore boost memory. They looked at 37 healthy volunteers, age 50 to 69, who were randomly assigned to eat either a high flavanol diet or a low flavanol diet for three months. Now, 37 split into two groups. These are extremely small sample sizes, so certainly that limits the conclusions. Three months is also not too terribly long. Uh, it would be great to see this followed up with a much, much larger group and longer-term study to really uh, get a much uh, more accurate and definitive answer. Nonetheless, uh, what they did was the people on the high-flavanol diet were given a drink containing cocoflavanols, which was prepared specifically for research purposes. Uh, so don't think you can just take some Hershey's cocoa and mix this thing up for yourself. Uh, the food company Mars Incorporated partly supported this research and they also made the drink. Now, uh, justifiably so, this already should smack of potentially some uh, commercial and corporate uh, influence on the research. And, you know, so all medical research has to document these potential conflicts of interest. Uh, one of the study's co-authors is employed by Mars Incorporated, which has long-term research and commercial interests in cocoflavanols. The other study's co-authors declared they had no financial or other conflicts of interest. Now, uh, Mars made this drink using a proprietary process to extract flavanols from cocoa beans. Most methods of processing cocoa remove many of the flavanols found in the raw plant. So they have found a way to extract the flavanols and uh, proprietary process is code for uh, we have our way of doing it and we're not telling you how. That's basically what that means. Now, to get back to the, the study itself, the participants underwent brain imaging scans and they took memory tests both before and after the study. These tests involved 20-minute exercises in which participants had to quickly identify wavy items they had previously seen on a video screen. If a participant had the memory of a typical 60-year-old at the beginning of the study, after three months of consuming the drink, that person on average had the memory of a typical 30- or 40-year-old. That's rather a startling improvement that some drink derived from cocoa beans could make your memory 20 or 30 years younger. 
The researchers noted, as I said before, the drink they used in the study is not the same as chocolate. Chocolate has only minute amounts of flavanols, so the study does not in any way recommend or suggest eating chocolate or, for that matter, I'll add, drinking cocoa. The findings need to be replicated in a larger study, and the team say they plan to conduct such a study. And I, for one, look forward to hearing the results of that. Now, this mixture of cocoa flavanols used in the study has also been shown to improve cardiovascular health. Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston recently announced a National Institute of Health funded study of 18,000 men and women now that's a sample size, now we're talking here, that investigated whether flavanols can help prevent heart attacks and strokes. And those researchers detailed their findings online October 26th in the journal Nature Neuroscience. Now, uh, that's uh, actually, that's the, that's the uh, journal where the, the cocoa flavanol study was done, but Again, the fact that other researchers are studying cocoflavanols for heart health, just, you know, more evidence that what is associated with heart health is associated with brain health. Uh, because it all comes down to reducing inflammation, which in turn reduces damage to blood vessels, which in turn uh, improves and keeps blood flowing well and that keeps tissue healthy, whether you're talking about heart tissue or brain tissue. So there you go. Now, while uh, the mixture these people drank was highly concentrated in terms of cocoa flavanols, does it mean eating chocolate in moderation or drinking cocoa in moderation will hurt you? Of course not. You're bound to get some cocoa flavanols, even if it's a very, very small amount. But please, folks, in moderation, and uh, not for the sake of thinking you're going to be doing something strongly medicinal to improve your memory. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news on Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Did you miss the show? that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan 
Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed, and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. You know, I realize tonight's show could have had a, a singular unifying theme. I mean, not all going to be along those lines, but it's a lot about memory and things that may or may not help. Um, <clears throat> we talked about brain training games that don't seem to work. Um, alcohol that may, if you're 60 and older and have some specific characteristics. Walnuts, which definitely seem to help. Uh, compounds in cocoa would seem to help. But while we're sticking with the theme of something in the diet, we're going to move away from Alzheimer's disease and memory problems and just talk about response to antidepressants. Now, uh, some research from the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology says that fish intake is associated with a boost to antidepressant response. Up to half of patients who suffer from depression do not respond to treatment with SSRIs, those are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. There are certainly other antidepressants beside the SSRIs. Um, a lot of articles uh, in the lay media just equal, uh, they say that all antidepressants are SSRIs, they use the term uh, the terms interchangeably. It's not true, but in any case, now a group of Dutch researchers have carried out a study which shows that increasing your intake of fatty fish appears to increase the response rate in patients who do not respond to antidepressants. And this researcher is uh, being presented at a uh, congress in Berlin. Now, According to the lead researcher, they are looking for biological alterations that could explain depression and antidepressant non-response. So they combined two apparently unrelated measures, metabolism of fatty acids and stress hormone regulation. <clears throat> now, interestingly, they saw that patients with depression have an altered metabolism of fatty acids and that this changed metabolism was regulated in a different way by stress hormones. The researchers were looking at the relationship between depression and fatty acids and various hormones including the stress hormone cortisol. They took 70 patients with depression and compared them to 51 healthy control people who did not have depression, and they measured their fatty acid levels and their cortisol levels. They then gave the depressed patients 
20 milligrams of an SSRI antidepressant every day for six weeks. And in those who did not respond to the SSRIs, the dose was gradually increased up to 50 milligrams a day. And they measured fatty acid and cortisol levels throughout. What they found was that the depression patients who didn't respond to the medication also tended to have abnormal fatty acid metabolism. So they then checked the dietary habits of all of the subjects in the study. Now fatty fish is rich in fatty acids such as the well-known omega-3 DHA. So the researchers looked at the amount of fatty fish in the diet of all of the subjects in the trial. They categorized the patients into four groups according to their level of fatty fish intake and they found that those who took the least fish tended to respond badly to antidepressants, whereas those who had the most fish in the diet responded best to antidepressants. Those who ate fatty fish at least once a week had a 75% chance of responding to antidepressants, whereas those who never ate fatty fish had only a 23% chance of responding to antidepressants. Now, to just give you some perspective on the significance of those numbers, folks, even on a good day, antidepressants at best help 65% of the people who take them. To increase that to up to 75% for the people who have the most fatty fish in their diet, that is absolutely huge. And as far as the typical lowest level of success for antidepressants, that's usually around 33%. So if you just have no fatty fish in your diet at all, and you drop that success rate down from about a third down to 23%, that's also quite significant. What this all means is that these alterations in fatty acid metabolism in their relationship with stress hormone regulation were associated with future antidepressant response. And importantly, this association uh, was with eating fatty fish, an important dietary source of omega-3 fatty acids. The findings suggest that measures of fatty acid metabolism and their associated with stress hormone regulation might be of use as an early indicator of future antidepressant response. Fatty acid metabolism could be influenced by eating fish, which may be a way to improve antidepressant response rates. Now, to just kind of boil all this down to simpler terms, certainly we know that stress hormones are elevated in people with clinical depression, uh, most especially cortisol, and this has a negative impact on fatty acid metabolism. Eating more fatty fish will improve fatty acid metabolism 
and people who do that see a better response to antidepressant medications. But what this article about this research doesn't say is, well, why is that? So what is it about improving fatty acid metabolism in response to stress hormones that helps depression symptoms, whether you get these uh, improved fatty acid metabolisms from uh, eating fatty fish or otherwise? Well, it has to do with the structure of cell membranes, including brain cell membranes. They're made of the classic lipid bilayer, which is an inner and an outer layer of chains of fatty acids. So what scientists think is the link here is that the fatty acids, since they're such an important component of cell membranes, including and especially brain cell membranes, that when these fatty acids are, are healthier and the metabolism of them works better, then the cell membranes in the brain will function better, enhance communication, improve the flow of chemical hormones that regulate mood like serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine. And that is likely to be the mechanism whereby <clears throat> eating omega-3s, uh, which in turn improves fatty acid metabolism, will in turn enhance the function of brain cells and the brain and improve mood. So there you have it somewhat of a long walk, but at least now we have some pretty direct insights into how it may be that uh, eating fatty fish and increasing your omega-3s may relieve depression. <clears throat> well, that's pretty much all I have in terms of food and beverage-related issues and brain health. Uh, that was certainly quite a bit for just one show. Let me now turn my attention to a children and adolescents mental health update. This is, uh, has to do with adolescents specifically. So those of you with adolescents at home uh, who are going to school, definitely listen up and pay attention to this next article. Adolescents' conflicts with family spill over into school and vice versa. The lives of adolescents at home and at school may seem quite separate, but recent research has highlighted important connections. Family conflict and problems at school tend to occur together on the same day and sometimes even spill over in both directions to the next day, with family conflict increasing the likelihood of problems at school and vice versa. Conflicts at home spill over to school and school problems influence problems at home up to two days later, according to this new study. Negative mood and psychological symptoms are important factors in the process. The study appears in the journal Child Development. The problems that spill over from home and school include arguments between teens and their parents, doing poorly on a quiz or test, cutting class, difficulty understanding coursework, and not finishing assignments. Evidence of spillover for as long as two days suggests some teens get caught in a reverberating cycle of negative events. And also, teens' negative mood might be a way that problems are transmitted across areas. 
Failing a test could lead to irritability. That in turn leads to conflicts with parents and so on. Mental health symptoms put adolescents at risk for intensified spillover. More anxiety and depression showed stronger associations between conflicts with parents and same-day negative mood. To capture the day-to-day variability in adolescents' experience of family conflict and school problems, more than 113 to 17-year-olds and their parents completed questionnaires for 14 days. There was a large mix of races and ethnicities and uh, income ranges, and all three family members reported on conflict during the day that was ending. Teens reported on their mood and school experiences on the same day, and the teens also completed questionnaires on symptoms associated with depression, anxiety, and externalizing problems. Hopefully, this can inform interventions to help teens better handle their negative moods and improve their relationships with family as well as how they do academically. And with that, folks, it brings us to the end of tonight's show. I hope you found the interesting uh, information that I presented to you informative. I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you, and I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.